grab a Bible and open up to Mark 13. Jesus on the Mount of Olives, talking with Peter, James, John, and Andrew in a private conversation that would become some of the most important teaching uh, of our day. Verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. The one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord has shortened those days, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, He is there, do not believe Him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance." And so again, we join Jesus on the Mount of Olives, responding to two basic questions asked by the apostles, or asked by the four, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They were the four closest. In case you didn't know, the four closest to Jesus. You could call them His inner circle. And sometimes it was only Peter, James, and John, as on the Mount of Transfiguration. But often, Andrew was there as well. And so these four close, tight-knit friends of Jesus, the five of them together on the Mount of Olives, are having a very private conversation when the four ask Him in verse 4, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled. And as I shared on Sunday, they apparently thought that the destruction of the temple that Jesus indicated in verse 2 and the end of the age were one and the same event. They could not imagine Jerusalem falling and the age continuing on beyond that. In the same way, I think a lot of people can't imagine America falling and the world continuing on after that. We take comfort oftentimes in the stones and the buildings and the structures of man. Those structures are not guaranteed to last. Only the foundation that is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.11, Paul tells us there's one foundation which has been laid, and that foundation is Jesus. You build on Jesus, you're building on eternal things. If you build on other things, or if you put your trust in the structures of man, be they actual building structures or institutions, again, we talked about this Sunday, those things fall. Those things are not a healthy or safe or, or reliable place on which to put our trust. We put our trust in the Lord Jesus. And Jesus makes it very clear the destruction of the temple, the fall of Jerusalem, and the end of the age are not the same thing. In fact, after verse 2, He's not talking about the fall of Jerusalem at all. The whole implications of what would happen 40 years later in A.D. 70, all He says about that is what you see in verse 2. As He begins to answer their questions, He fast-forwards directly to the end of the age, a separate event from the fall of Jerusalem. And that being the case, when the bulk of his teaching in Mark 13 is all about the end of the age, why even mention that not one stone would be left upon another in verse 2? Why even mention the fall of Jerusalem? And I remind you also what we talked about Sunday, 
that in so doing, Jesus legitimizes the prophecy of the entire chapter by giving a short-term prophecy that would be fulfilled in their lifetime, that they would see fulfilled, they could say, ah, this was fulfilled literally, therefore the rest of what he taught us there on the Mount of Olives will also be fulfilled literally. And that draws off of an old, uh, an old guarantee, a promise of God in Deuteronomy 18. Verse 21, he said, You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? How do we know if someone is prophesying correctly? How do we know if someone is not speaking truth or prophecy from the Lord? He says in Deuteronomy 18.22, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. And so the test of the metal of a prophet was, did he prophesy something short-term that was fulfilled? If so, then you can trust him to teach or prophesy something in the long term, something that may happen after your lifetime, something that in the case of Mark 13 would be over 2,000 years later. If the temple hadn't fallen... If it still stood there on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem today, we would have a hard time accepting the rest of Mark 13 as a literal prophecy. We would have to spiritualize it. But the Temple did fall. Jerusalem was raised to the ground. The whole place was demolished. Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled literally, and therefore we can look at the rest of the chapter the same way. Now we frame the teaching of Christ so far in uh, four different ways, a four-point outline from Sunday. We're going to just continue on that same outline and add three or four more points onto it. So if you have Sunday notes, you can just tack this onto it as we continue. The four uh, points on Sunday were the structures of man, the stream of history, the spread of the gospel, and the sign for Israel. Now I cannot emphasize enough that the teaching of Mark 13 is for Israel. Understand that the elect in verse 20 and verse 22, the elect is not talking about the church. It is talking about Israel. Ironside said, we look in vain for any mention in Matthew 24, Mark 13, or Luke 21, any mention of the church of the present dispensation. When Jesus spoke these words, the truth of the body of Christ was still unrevealed. This mystery was not made known until given by special illumination by the Apostle Paul and through him to others sometime after the present age of grace began. Understand that even in the first century church, in the first 10, 20, 30 years of the church, the Jerusalem church, it was a Jewish church. It wasn't even called, the the disciples weren't even called Christians until they were called Christians for the first time in Antioch. There in Jerusalem, it was Judaism fulfilled. And the idea of the church was still not revealed to them until the Lord downloads it to Paul, and Paul starts to talk about it in Ephesians and Colossians, and I'll I'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But when Rabbi Jesus spoke these words, the church was still a twinkle in the eye of the Lord. Not yet birthed. The mystery still unrevealed. And so the teaching is fully Jewish in nature, and the sign is for Israel. And it brings us to verse 14. What is the abomination of desolation? What is it? What does it mean? I um, 
spent the last three days in Vancouver, Canada, uh, British Columbia, with my brother. He called me up about a month ago and said, hey, will you come, to me, come with me to see a concert? And I said, sure, who? He said, Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> wow. So we went to a Springsteen concert, 63 years old, and you know what? I was tired of standing after about an hour, and he went for three and a half hours, just one song after another. Two, three, four, next song. It was amazing. About halfway through the concert, Springsteen goes, and, and if you've ever seen him or know anything about him, his concerts are almost like a tent revival meeting, although without Jesus. But he, he, he struts around the stage and he talks and interacts with the audience like a gospel preacher extraordinaire. I, I sat there the whole time going, man, if this guy just would preach Jesus, he would be amazing. And he gets up there and he goes, we've come from traveling around the world. We've been traveling around the world. We've gone to far places, distant places, and we've come here tonight to ask you one question. We've come to ask you one question, he says. Before we came on stage, there was a great banner on the wall, and it says, We are all Canucks. What does that mean? (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) We are all Canucks. You may wonder the same thing about the abomination of desolation. What does that mean, really? If you allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, the answer is very clear. If you try and read into it, you're going to miss what it is. Verse 14, When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. And it speaks then of fleeing out, getting out to a place prepared in the wilderness for them. Book of Revelation talks about that. Isaiah talked about it. We looked at that, I believe, Isaiah 16. Talks about a place in the wilderness. Selah, which means rock. Some of you have been to Petra in Jordan, which is an amazing place. Maybe the place in the wilderness that the Jewish people, Israel, will flee. But when you see this, here's the sign. Remember, the Jewish rabbi talking to Jewish people. And there is coming a day when Jewish people will see the sign of the abomination of desolation. And if they are aware of Jesus' words, they will know it's time to get out. There is nothing left to do here but flee for our lives. There will be all the birth pangs and the death throes. There will be the increasing intensity and frequency even after the church is not here. But what Jesus Himself calls the abomination of desolation, which is a precise, unambiguous, definitive event, it will mark the midpoint of the very tribulation that Jesus describes in the following verses. And we know that exactly. Not because we have a certain theology that drives it, but because Scripture explains it that way. And I'd like to help you see that tonight. Turn in your Bibles back to the book of Daniel. Chapter 11. The abomination of desolation is deeply, deeply rooted in Jewish understanding. When Jesus spoke those words, this was something understood. In fact, it's something they had seen. Watch this, Daniel 11.31. Forces from Him will arise desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice and they will set up the abomination of desolation. That's partially where Jesus is drawing the abomination of desolation from and partially why He says 
And something Jesus actually said, let the reader understand. As opposed to Mark inserting it, some believe perhaps Jesus said that. And Peter, Andrew, James, and John went, let the reader understand. What are you talking about? Don't worry about it. It's for someone else. But we're called to understand. Go back to the abomination of desolation. Daniel talks about it. Daniel is in the midst of a prophecy of an abominable occurrence in Jewish history that was fresh in the minds of the first century Jews. In fact, something that had only happened 171 years before Christ came. So just over 200 years earlier when Jesus spoke this word. Now we still remember very vividly, we know things that happened 200 years ago in this country. We can call to mind, we have history that goes back there very simply, very easily, things that impact us today in the previous election. All the talk about the Constitution this and the Constitution that. That's a 200-year-old document. But for Americans, it either is or should be deeply rooted in our understanding of our roots as a country. Well, Jesus ties into the abomination of desolation. What was that? And what was it Daniel was prophesying? Okay, understand, Daniel's prophesying in about 530 B.C. Around 171 B.C., or, or in 171 B.C., the Syrian king, whose name was Antiochus Epiphanes, overran Jerusalem. He went into the temple. He spattered pig's blood soup all over the Holy of Holies to desecrate it for the Jews. There in the holy place of the temple, and again, the verse says, forces from him will arise. Daniel, in that moment, is prophesying partially of Antiochus Epiphanes. And we see it in the context of the whole thing that I don't have time to do tonight, but you can go back and and study through on your own Daniel 11, and you see this is a historical account given by Daniel about 400 years before much of it began to take place. And it all was fulfilled perfectly. So Antiochus Epiphanes, forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, that is the temple, and do away with the regular sacrifice, which happened in the temple. And they will set up the abomination of desolation, which took place in the temple. So he he spattered this pig stuff all over the inside. And then they set up an idol to Zeus in the Holy of Holies in the temple in 171 B.C., This is not a story that was quickly or easily forgotten by the Jewish people. By the way, the stoppage of the Jewish sacrifices and the setting up of an idol in the temple had happened before. That wasn't the first time. We're told in Jeremiah 7, verse 30, The sons of Judah have done that which is evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house which is called by my name to defile it. Jeremiah 32.34 They put their detestable things in the house which is called by my name to defile it. Ezekiel 5.11 As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things or detestable idols and with all your abominations, therefore I will also withdraw and my eye will have no pity and I will not spare. The Hebrew word in Daniel 11.31 for abominations, shikuts. Shikuts means detestable idolatry. So understand in the abomination of desolation that the abomination is a detestable idol. It's a very specific word. And it speaks of idolatry. And it's detestable because idolatry is detestable, but it's abominable, it's even worse because of where that idol would be set up. 
Now ultimately, in 171 B.C., after Antiochus Epiphanes does this, overruns Jerusalem, sets up the idol, a revolt was waged against him, against his armies, by the Maccabees, who, who led it. It was Jewish guerrilla warfare at its best, and they drove him out. After driving Antiochus out, they went in and they cleaned up the temple. And they reconsecrated the temple. And they got everything set to begin the regular sacrifice again, but suddenly they had a problem. Some of you know this story. They lit the lampstand in the temple and realized they didn't have any consecrated oil to keep the lamps burning. And it would take at least eight days to consecrate more oil to get that lampstand to burn every day. And they prayed, and they began to consecrate the new oil, and the lampstand burned straight for eight days. And it's still celebrated today by Jewish people. It's called the Feast of Lights, or Hanukkah. Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. If you look in John chapter 10, He's in Jerusalem for the Feast of Lights. He was there for Hanukkah. I don't know if He was playing the dreidel game or not, but He was there. And so Hanukkah celebrates that and looks back to that time. In the time of Jesus, the Jewish people annually looked back to the abomination of desolation. To what Antiochus Epiphanes did and to the miracle of the overthrow of his armies and the festival of lights, those candles, the lampstand that remained burning for eight days. But you need to note this. The abomination of Antiochus did not result in desolation. The word desolation, shamem, an appalling ruin. So this is what Daniel prophesies, an abomination, an idolatrous abomination that brings about a complete devastation, a ruin. What Antiochus Epiphanes did, did not bring about the ruin of Jerusalem. So was this prophecy not fulfilled? This prophecy of Antiochus Epiphanes prefigures a later prophecy. Prefigures. It's like a preliminary of the actual event that is still yet to come. The Greek word for desolation, when Jesus says the abomination of desolation, is eremosis. And it means to lay waste. It means a complete destruction. When Antiochus did this, the city was not destroyed. And again, his actions were but a prophetic preview of what would take place later on of the actual abomination of desolation. Besides the fact that if you look at the words of Jesus in Mark 13, He says, when you see, not when you saw. So the abomination of desolation, that Jesus draws that picture of Antiochus Epiphanes. He draws that picture from history. And He says, when you see this happen again, beware. God allowed, I believe, Antiochus to do that as a preview of coming attractions. Well, Rick, what about Titus in AD 70? He made a desolation of the temple and the city, right? Absolutely, he did. But not an abomination. So Antiochus had an abomination without a desolation. (laughs) And Titus had a desolation but no abomination. They didn't set up an idol in the temple. There wasn't an abomination act at that time when Rome destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70. So, in both cases, you kind of had half of the picture, but not the whole picture. And Jesus says, it's going to be the whole picture. This is the abomination of desolation, where a complete devastation and ruin follows the act of abomination in the temple, the idolatry. So, it's a very, very specific thing that Jesus describes in Mark 13, verse 14. 
Keep your finger there and go all the way over to the right to 2 Thessalonians. Paul talks about it. In chapter 2, he writes, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now there's a lot there, but understand, our gathering together to Him speaks of the rapture of the church. Of us being called home, of being caught up. The day of the Lord speaks of the tribulation. Our gathering together precedes the day of the Lord. Okay, The rapture precedes the tribulation, that time of, of God's wrath on this unrighteous world. And Paul says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, speaking of the tribulation, the day of the Lord, unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, or the son of perdition. And that is Antichrist. In verse 4 he says, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that, note this, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Titus did not do that 20 years later in AD 70. Titus did not proclaim himself or display himself as God taking a seat in the temple. Paul wrote this about 20 years before AD 70. What Paul describes here cannot have happened then. But note, what Paul describes here assumes that the temple is standing. That someone is going to go into the temple and proclaim himself to be God from the temple in Jerusalem. And since AD 70 there has been no temple, what does that tell you? It's going to be one. It's going to be built. There will be a third temple built in Jerusalem and this event is going to take place. Now, go all the way back to Daniel. Chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Look at verse 24. It's been called the prophecy of the 70 weeks. You Bible students may be familiar. Hopefully this is a refresher for you. If you're not familiar, pay very close attention. This is absolutely astounding. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Have all those things taken place? No, they haven't. But they will within this time period, within this framework, that the angel Gabriel tells Daniel is a 70 weeks. 70 weeks. And before I say anything about the 70 weeks, to what and to whom does this prophecy apply? Note again, he says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. He is talking to Daniel. Daniel's people were the Jews. The holy city is Jerusalem. This prophecy is a prophecy that is specific to Israel. How long are the 70 weeks? 70 weeks. The Hebrew word for week is Shavuim, which is a plural form of the word Shavuah. A Shavuah in Hebrew is the same as a Heptad in English. What's a Heptad? It's a unit of seven. Okay, A Heptad is a unit of seven. If you hear me say Heptad or Shavuah, 
I'm talking about a unit of seven in the same way we use the word dozen as a unit of twelve. Okay? A heptad is just a unit of seven. So what he literally says, what the angel Gabriel says here in talking to Daniel, is seventy-sevens have been decreed for the Jewish people and Jerusalem. Seventy units of seven. What does seventy times seven equal? Four hundred and ninety. Seventy times seven, four hundred and ninety. We're talking about a time period of four hundred and ninety. Four hundred and ninety what? Four hundred and ninety days? No, history doesn't bear that out. It's four hundred and ninety years. The four hundred and ninety years are absolutely clear in history. Follow this through with me. Four hundred and ninety years are decreed for your people. Seventy Shavuot, seventy heptads. 483 of the 490 years described by the angel here have been fulfilled literally and precisely. Seven years are left, unfulfilled. By the way, let me just say this for those of you who might wonder about or doubt Daniel's prophecy, as some Bible scholars do. Some Bible scholars say Daniel is too literal to be believable. Daniel could not possibly have written in 500 or 530 B.C. because he talks about events that happened in around 300 and 200 and 100. And and it's like reading history ahead of time. It's not possible. Well, it is if God told him. You know, it is if it's prophecy. And I want you to note that Jesus publicly affirmed Daniel as the prophet of this passage. In chapter uh, 13 verse 14 Mark 13 14 Jesus says it let the reader understand when you see what was spoken of by the prophet Daniel A. Prof, Daniel is a prophet B. He talked about the abomination of desolation therefore Daniel chapter 9 Jesus says is legitimate Jesus believed Daniel was the same prophet who wrote this verse 25 so you are to know and discern That from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks, okay, seven sevens, and sixty-two sevens. And it, Jerusalem, will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. And the word moat there, you might note, also can be translated wall. It will be built with a wall, okay? And so the angel says, from the time that a decree is given to the arrival of the Messiah, here's what's going to happen. Seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. So what happened? Well, first of all, we got to note that there was a decree. A decree given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, there were some different decrees that were given regarding Jerusalem. Joshua and Zerubbabel received a decree to go back and rebuild the temple. Uh, Ezra received a decree to take more people back and, and repopulate and refill the land. Nehemiah received a decree to go back and rebuild the city and the wall. That's the decree we're talking about. In 445 B.C., 445 B.C., Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, honored a request by his cupbearer, Nehemiah, to go back and rebuild the city of Jerusalem with the wall. And the entire book of Nehemiah talks about the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. 
Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8 tell us about this decree by Artaxerxes. We know it happened March 14, 445 B.C. Nehemiah followed after Zerubbabel and after Ezra, but he came in with the express purpose of rebuilding the city and rebuilding the wall exactly, specifically, as the angel talked about to Daniel here in the prophecy. In 397 B.C., exactly 49 years later, the, week, the work was done. And you might note this, he says, from the decree until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks, which was 49 years, and 62 weeks. He breaks it up. Why does he do that? Because after the first seven, the first seven weeks, 49 years, something significant happened. Jerusalem was finished. It was rebuilt. But then from there, from that point forward, again, that was 397 B.C. From that point forward, we had to have to add on the next 62 sevens. Are you with me? I'm getting a few of you going, I did so bad in math in high school, and I don't even know what chapter are we in. Nine, nine. Four plus five equals nine. I got that. Okay. 62 weeks. So we have the first seven weeks was fulfilled exactly 49 years from the decree to the finishing of the wall to the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Happened exactly. 62 weeks would happen then, or 62 sevens. 62 units of seven, which would be longer. This is, now this is breathtaking because you gotta put this together. You have to think in terms of the lunar calendar which is the Jewish calendar, 360 days a year, not 365 days a year. That will throw you off. 360 days a year. So if you count out the first seven Shavuot, the first seven Heptads, those 49 years, it comes out to 17,640 days. You can write it down or just take my word for it. Add in 62 more Heptads, 62 more units of seven, that's 434 more years. It's 156,240 days. Add it on there, and the total comes to 483 years, or 173,880 days. Okay? You're looking even more confused. Accounting for leap years across that span of time, this lands us precisely from the issuing of the decree, 445 B.C., March 14th, 445 B.C. It lands us precisely on April the 6th, A.D. 32. What happened then? On that day, a Galilean carpenter named Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and was declared the Messiah. What does the prophecy say? You are to know and discern that from the issuing of of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, 445 B.C., until Messiah the Prince, there would be, and he describes, 483 years. And in those 483 years, at the very precise moment, Jesus arrived in the city. Just as the angel prophesied. Just as we have written in our Bibles. Jesus did so, fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And you might say, well, Jesus, maybe he knew the math. And so he figured it out. And so he showed up. Well, first of all, he would have to have been, if it was by chance... And he was just trying to make himself this Messiah. He would have to have been born at the right time to do it. Right? 
It also would have had to have fallen the days exactly, precisely to get him there the week before Passover so he could die a Passover lamb. There are so many things that had to fall into place for this to happen, things that would beyond, be beyond any human being's control. And so as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that day, it was the fulfillment of divine prophecy. Remarkable. By the end of that week, from when He rode in, you all know the story, by the end of the week, Messiah was cut off. Read the next verse, verse 26. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. The Hebrew word there for cut off means killed. The Messiah will be killed and have nothing And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. So not just a single desolation, but all kinds of desolation from that point all the way through history. And we've seen that. We've seen war after war, battle after battle, nation fighting nation, desolation after desolation. This was, verse 26, was fulfilled in A.D. 70. Listen to it again. The Messiah will be cut off. Well, He was cut off 40 years later. After the 62 weeks were fulfilled, 40 years later now, in A.D. 70, the city was destroyed. He says, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The city and the sanctuary, the last time that happened, only the second time, to the Jews, at least the temple being destroyed, was A.D. 70. The first time was 586. So now in A.D. 70, it happens exactly as prophesied. They'll destroy the city and the sanctuary. From that point forward, we begin the stream of history that Jesus describes in the rest of Mark chapter 13. But note this, we come to the final week, and this is critical to our study tonight, verse 27. And He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Note this, one heptad. For one shabuim. One unit of seven. Okay, That is literally right there, seven years. You've heard me say many times, if you've been at the bridge very long, the tribulation is seven years long. Why? Because of Daniel. And because the book of Revelation gives us to the day... The, the time frame of this time of tribulation. But note this, He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Now before we go further, who are the people of the prince who is to come in verse 26? Well, who destroyed the city in AD 70? Rome. The Romans. Now there's been all kinds of ideas of what does that mean? Because everybody was under Rome's authority in those days and the, and the armies that actually fought, perhaps they had those who ultimately would become Muslims and, and might there be a Muslim Antichrist? I'm not going to get into all that. I don't know. I'm still studying that for the next time I teach Revelation. So I'm not sure. But we know it, that the people of the Prince who is to come, His people, were those who destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70. That means from from that group of people, somehow from the, the lineage, Antichrist is one day going to come. From that lineage. Some say that he'll be Eastern European. Uh, some say there will be some you know, bloodline connection all the way back to that. The people of the prince who is to come were the Romans who destroyed Jerusalem. The prince who is to come is Antichrist. Now this is important too, and I'm I'm taking a little extra time to get this. We will get back to Mark 13 sometime between today and tomorrow, I promise. (laughs) 
who is the prince, or who is the he? Because in verse 27 it says, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings, and on the wings of abominations will come one who makes desolate. So who's the he? And some have tried to say the he is Christ. That doesn't work. Well, they say, yeah, but, but it says Messiah will be cut off. And then down in verse 27 it says he. You've got to use the normal rules of language here and especially of the Hebrew language here, which is very specific. The normal rule is the antecedent, the antecedent, which is the word he, always goes back to the nearest preceding possibility. The nearest preceding possibility possibility to he is who? The prince who is to come. Not Messiah the prince, but the prince who is to come. Okay, So it's not Jesus that's being talked about. The prince who is to come is another who is of the people of Rome and he is one who makes desolation. It's talking about Antichrist. Okay, The prince who is to come is Antichrist. So notice again now in verse 27, he makes a firm covenant with the many for one week for seven years. In the middle of the week, that's three and a half years in, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. Okay, I believe that covenant is going to be A, the rebuilding of the Jewish temple. Uh, B, that covenant will include restoring the Jewish right to worship and to sacrifice on the Temple Mount, bringing great joy and peace to the Jewish people. But three and a half years in, he stops the whole thing, and he then, on the wing of abominations, that is, on the wing of idolatrous things, will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Are you getting the picture? Let me draw back. The people of Rome, the coming prince is Antichrist, who according to Daniel will be somehow of that line. This is all going to happen. Antichrist is going to go into the temple three and a half years into this tribulation period. After making a covenant of peace with Israel, he's going to break that covenant of peace three and a half years in, go into the temple, and proclaim himself to be God. It's what Paul described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's what we see described in Daniel chapter 9. Now some have asked, why? If Jesus was spot on in showing up right when He did, you know, from verse 26, that the Messiah shows up right on time, after the 62 sevens, why, if He was right on schedule, didn't this happen immediately after His crucifixion? Why didn't we see a seven-year time period continuing on? Why 483 years out of 490 and all of a sudden it stops? People will say, well, that doesn't make sense. How come? When Jesus died, Israel's prophetic clock stopped ticking. Because from the point of Jesus' death forward, Israel and God's plan for Israel was put on hold. Because Israel rejected Messiah. The Jewish people, by the Jewish leadership, rejected the Messiah. In the moment of that rejection... The promise, remember, the promise in Daniel chapter 9 was for the Jewish people and for Jerusalem. These 490 weeks are determined for you and your people, Daniel. But when the people rejected God, God stopped the clock. We do it every year in my house. We have a snowman clock that we put up with the decorations every holiday season. 
And at the end of the holiday season, we take the snowman clock down because I don't want to hear Christmas songs all year long. It plays little Christmas songs every time it comes around to the hour. We take down the clock, we pop out the battery, and the clock stops until the next year when we put the battery back in. What is the battery, so to speak, that starts the clock ticking again, that kicks off this seven-year period? Bible students, what is it? It's the covenant. The covenant starts the clock ticking. The covenant, we can know this, and He will make a firm covenant with the many for seven years, for one week. The signing of the covenant begins the seven year of tribulation. Okay? Everybody understand that? The covenant signed. The tribulation begins. Three and a half years in, Antichrist declares himself to be God. At that point, all heaven breaks loose. I like to put it this way. The first three and a half years of the tribulation, all hell breaks loose. Satan, through Antichrist, tries to gain dominance and, and control and power over the world. Three and a half years in, he declares himself, Antichrist does, to be God. And God says, that's it. And that's where we hit what Jesus refers to specifically as the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation. Can God stop time? Well, sure He can. He did it for Joshua in Joshua chapter 10. Stop the sun and the day and let the battle continue until Joshua had the upper hand and won. He did it for Hezekiah in 2 Kings chapter 20. Caused the shadow to go back down the steps. Showing Hezekiah, I'm adding more time to your life. God is in control of time. God wants to stop time. He can stop time. If God wants to stop a clock of prophecy, He can stop a clock of prophecy. And based on our best understanding, historically, biblically, and otherwise, 483 years of this prophecy are fulfilled literally, precisely. There are seven years that are just waiting for the battery to be slid back into place and the clock to start ticking again. And Jesus picks up and talks about that. Now go back to Mark chapter 13. While you're turning there, Psalm 31 verse 15 says, My times are in your hand. Daniel 2.21 says, It is He who changes the times and the epochs. God alone can do that. Back to Jesus. And He describes from verses 14 all the way through 23, describes what we just read. The tribulation. Verse 19, those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord shortened those days, no life would have been saved but for the sake of the elect, Israel, whom He chose, He shortened the days. That's why it's seven years. Why not a hundred year tribulation? Tell you what, if I was God and I saw the atrocities going on on planet Earth, I'd go for more like a thousand years of payback. God says seven years. That's going to be the deal. That's what I have said. I've shortened it to that amount and that will accomplish, by the way, all the stuff that uh, Gabriel said in Daniel 9 needed to take place. Those six different things will all be fulfilled and take place in that time. It says, if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, He is there, do not believe Him, even if it's Jamie Foxx. <laughs> did, you, did you all see that? Okay. One was sharing this with me earlier. Jamie Foxx was it was the uh, Soul Train Awards, right? Stood up at the Soul Train Awards in front of all the people there, and, and he said, First of all, we gotta thank God. And everybody cheers. 
And we need to thank our Lord and Savior, Barack Obama. That's what he said. By the way, my stomach would turn just as much if it had been our Lord and Savior, George Bush. There is no man who is my Lord and Savior other than the man, Jesus Christ. He is the one and only. And so if people say, here he is or there he is, this guy can save your life, this guy can make your life better, how about this guy, let's, let's look to him. There's not a single man on planet earth that can make your life better, only, only Jesus Christ. But I love what he says, he says, false, Christ, uh, false prophets will arise, they'll show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. Everything in advance. Where is the church in all of this? Absent. You won't find a single mention of the church in Mark chapter 13 because we're not here. You pick up in the book of Revelation from chapter 6 all the way through chapter 19, there is not a single mention of the church. Why? Because we're not here in that time of tribulation. Praise God! Amen. You know, we're in heaven. We're with Jesus before the pre-tribulation. Before the tribulation. Before the revelation of Antichrist. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 Are you tired of this verse yet? For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord where? In the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, Paul says, comfort one another with these words. And so we do. We are not looking for Antichrist. We are looking for Jesus Christ. We're looking for His coming to call His people home. And by the way, there's nothing left that has to happen. On the prophetic calendar, there is nothing left that has to take place before Jesus can call His people home. The rapture is not tied to the signing of the covenant. The rapture is not tied to the tribulation. The calling up of God's people is not tied to any event in human history. Everything has taken place that must take place. So right now, we're just waiting. We're just in overtime. And by the way, the rapture doesn't necessarily immediately precede the tribulation. It probably will. But the tribulation isn't based on the rapture. The tribulation is based on the covenant. Okay? But we're going home. We're going home. And that's why, again, I keep pointing out Mark 13. These things, though, we have, we are seeing birth pangs all around us. We may see worse than what we've seen, but we're not going to see the worst. In fact, as I've heard other pastors say before, your life here on earth right now is as close to hell as you'll ever get. <laughs> Praise the Lord. This brings me to number five. So the sign is for Israel. That was number four in the list. Number five, note this, Jesus begins to talk about the shaking of the stars and the powers. Verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Didn't happen in A.D. 70. Well, maybe it was, you know, not literal. Maybe it was, he was talking about spiritual things. Everything else was, was literal. Everything else Jesus is talking about is literally fulfilled. So let's not spiritualize things. We need to take it literally. And literally, at the end of the seven years, the final seven years, 
after that tribulation, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from the sky. The shaking of the stars. Jesus quotes Isaiah's prophecy of the end of the age. Isaiah 13, verse 10, The stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Isaiah said in chapter 34, verse 4, All the host of heaven will wear away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. The indication here is, specifically, it's obviously astronomical powers. The stars. The stars, the sun, the moon, they will, sh- they will be shaken. They will not give their light. Now, Lord willing, coming up December 23rd, we're going to show on Sunday morning an astounding an astounding DVD. You've got to see this. It's called The Star of Bethlehem. And we're going to look, as has been discovered, at what the sky was like around the time of Jesus. And it, it'll blow your mind. It's absolutely cool. So that's, that's coming up. It details what was going on in the constellations at the time of Jesus' birth. What the constellations would tell us. Remember the wise men who came to Jesus' birth? These guys were stargazers. They were not astrologers, they were astronomers. Okay? They, they read the stars to understand what perhaps God was saying to us. Now let me make a very clear distinction because someone might say, Rick, that sounds a little astrological. <laughs> no, it's not astrological, it's astronomical. I don't look to the stars for the stars to tell me my future, but I'll tell you what, the stars, though they have no power to tell us our future, God has used them like ink on paper to declare His glory. And not just because they're kind of pretty. Okay, The Bible tells us in Psalm 19.1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, but their line has gone out throughout all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world, which tells us that God has written in the stars what He's doing. And again, you're going to see this more clearly on the 23rd, that there are there is a reason, a mathematical reason, for the placement of the stars and for why they are where they are God used the stars in the same way He's used creation, in the same way He's used all all manner of things created to declare His glory. And the stars do declare exactly what God has them declare. Again, like ink on paper are the stars in the heavens. And so, sun, moon, stars are going to fall. They're going to go dark. It's over. The end of the tribulation. It, It really falls apart and people realize... The end of the age has finally, absolutely come. But I want you to notice this. Jesus also says, in addition to sun, moon, and stars, Jesus says the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. And I don't believe that He is just alluding to the sun, moon, and stars again. For one thing, the moon's not a power. It's a reflector. It just reflects the light of the sun. The powers will be shaken. This very possibly could refer to spiritual powers. If you want to follow me over here, go over to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Describing for us what is going on, what will go on spiritually. 
actually, but spiritually in the heavens at this same time. We, from a human perspective, well not we, but those on planet earth at the time, from a human perspective will see the sun go dark and the moon not give its light and the stars falling from the sky. But in the heavenly places there's something else happening with the powers. Watch this. There was war in heaven. Verse 7. Revelation 12.7. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. Which is why, by the way, I've shared before, Satan has access to heaven right now. He has access to go before the Father and to accuse you of being pathetic Christians. That's what he does. But there is coming a time at the end of the tribulation when it's all coming down that he will be booted out finally and once and for all out of heaven without any access anymore. No longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame Him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. And verse 11, gang, is talking about the Jews in the tribulation who have faith in Jesus. It's talking about tribulation saints, those who come to faith in Jesus at that time. And it is an amazing marker of a true person of faith. And it's the way I want to live my life. That is someone who overcomes by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of my testimony. And because I don't love my life even when faced with death. It's not my life that I love. It's His life. And it's where I will be for all eternity. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. And when the devil saw that he was thrown down to earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, Israel, through whom Jesus came. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. How long is that? It's three and a half years. If a year is a time, then times would be two years, and half a time would be a half year, three and a half years. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman. The earth opened up its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. Back in Mark 13, clearly, gang, the Olivet Discourse was and is prophetic for Israel and not the church. These are Jewish things. Yeah, about that. Why was the church kept a secret until after Jesus' resurrection? Why was the church kept a mystery? And that's a great question. Ephesians chapter 1. You remember what we talked about on Sunday in Ephesians chapter 1? If you don't, go back and listen to it. Or just read the first 12 verses where Paul is talking about the election and the predestination and the chosenness of the people. And those first 12 verses, he is talking about himself and Israel. And then he picks up in verse 13 of Ephesians 1 and says, In him you also, 
after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. Why? To the praise of His glory. And so Paul is talking from a Jewish vantage point to Gentiles in Ephesus about the church in his letter to the Ephesians. Now just listen for a moment because I want to answer the question, why was it kept a mystery? Why was the church a mystery? In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, just jot this down, but listen right now. To me, Paul says, the very least of all saints, this grace was given. What grace? To preach... To the Gentiles, the unfathomable riches of Messiah. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church, to, listen, to the, listen, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This is, this is astounding. This is so amazing to me. Why was the church kept a mystery until after the resurrection of Christ? Why was it not more clear in prophecy? Why isn't it throughout the Hebrew Scriptures? Why didn't God start with Abraham and say, I'm going to save... Well, He did, didn't He? I'm going to save you and your people and through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. But why not just a clear, and I'm going to create this thing called the church... And it's going to run for 2,000 years. Why not tell us? Why keep it a mystery? Because through the church, through the, which means through you and me tonight, God is teaching the powers of the heavenly places about grace. Israel reveals God's faithfulness. God is teaching the heavenly places, teaching the angels, teaching the powers, teaching them about faithfulness. Let me give you an example of my faithfulness. I'm going to commit to a people. No matter what they do, I'm going to show you faithfulness. I'm going to stay committed to them. With the church, he says, let me show you about my grace. I can save anybody. Now, to an angel created to worship God, created to be in the presence of God, what is grace? They don't need grace. They're already in heaven. I'm not sure I understand this grace concept, Lord. Hallelujah. What is grace? And through the church, God reveals His grace. Ephesians 2, By grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so He uses the church. Do you understand? Again, this is all about His glory. It is not about your salvation. Your salvation is for His glory. The church is for His glory. Israel is for His glory. The creation is for His glory. It is all about the glory of God. I saw a movie last night. I don't want to ruin it for you, so I'll try not to, but it's called Life of Pi. Have you heard about it? Interesting movie, and I would call all thinking Christians to go watch the movie because it defines for us where our age is right now. Where is our age? Syncretism. Coexist. The main character of the movie is a Hindu young man who accepts Christ and accepts Islam. So he's Hindu, Christian, Buddhist, Islamic, and and all of it. And it's how he's working it out. And the essence of the story, without giving it away to you, is what it comes down to is 
Whatever you want to believe, choose your story. You want to choose the Hindu story? Choose the Hindu story. You want to choose the Christian story? That's fine. Choose the Christian story. You want to choose the Buddhist? That's fine. Whatever story you want to choose. You know what the problem is with that? It makes it about you. It's not about you. Even our existence as the church is not about us. It is about the glory of God. And God is not glorified through Hinduism. God is not glorified in Islam and He is not glorified, gang, in any other way except how He chooses to be glorified through Israel and the church. Faithfulness shown in Israel, grace shown through the church. There is something far and away greater than us that is going on here. And it is something that, boy, God just knocks it out of the box with number six on our outline here, the Son of Man's coming. The Son of Man's coming. Verse 26. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send forth the angels and will gather together His elect from the four winds from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Note that. That's interesting. His elect from the farthest end of earth to His elect from the farthest end of heaven. What's He talking about here? The saved of Israel. If we maintain the elect is Israel through this whole thing, then the elect is still Israel in verse 27. And as Jesus comes in power and glory in the clouds, He calls the angels He says, I want you to gather together all the faithful of Israel, those on earth alive right now, and those who died in faith who are in heaven. Get them all here. I want them front and center. And so all of the elect are gathered. Where are we? Well, I'll show you this another time, but we're riding with Him. We're behind him going, Woohoo! Go Jesus! Go Jesus! You know, we're, we're cheering him on, swinging our swords that we won't use because it'll be over by the time we get there. Oh, yeah, I'm with him. So he will do that. He'll send forth. Note this, by the way, there's a great reference here the reference to the Son of Man. I hadn't even seen this before. You think about Jesus coming and just get all excited. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of great power and glory. Great, He's coming. The Son of Man is coming. He's called the Son of Man. Isn't that interesting? Not Son of God. The Divine One. The Lamb. He's just called, here comes the Son of Man. Why? It is a direct reference to a vision of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel writes, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Daniel saw this in his vision. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, listen, to him, the Son of Man was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That is the Son of Man who is coming. That is Jesus Christ. And that's, by the way, why Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and every other faith and religion falls flat. Because none of them declare Jesus Christ, Son of Man, Son of God, as the one who is coming. And He is coming. Verse 28. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. (laughs) Now you Bible students are going, 
Okay, we've been at this for over an hour and we're just getting to the fig tree, Pastor Rick. Learn the parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves. You know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize He is near, right at the door. Bible students, you know this. The fig tree represents Israel. Right? Throughout Scripture, the fig tree represents Israel. The fig tree that had no fruit. Remember, Jesus cursed that fig tree. It had no fruit. It it portrayed Israel. The fig tree that appeared to be withered and dead. Jesus says, learn this parable. The sign of the fig tree putting forth leaves is the sign of Israel alive and budding, coming to life. Coming back to life in the land. Now, we got to understand two things here. Yes, Israel is back in the land. And yes, I believe we have seen the beginnings of the budding of that fig tree. It's going to happen far more than we even realize. Because not only is the fig tree going to be back in the land, but in the tribulation, the fig tree of Israel is going to be fruitful. And in that moment, those who are on planet earth can look at this parable and say, it's any second. Israel is now all over the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, the Bible tells us, all over planet Earth preaching the gospel. Israel, the Jewish people, will come back into their own. And the clock has already begun ticking again. They sign that covenant, and the clock starts ticking. And now God is dealing with his people, Israel, again. And they are fruitful. And remarkable things are taking place. I was recently asked the question just two days ago. Yeah, but what if Israel is destroyed all over again? Iran is ramping up the speed with which they are, they're working on their nukes right now. Just coming out in the news the last couple of days. Their nuclear program is at a breakneck pace. They are trying with everything they can to get it done while the world is distracted with other issues. What if Israel is destroyed all over again? I can't even answer that. Because i got to tell you, and I'm going to stick my neck out here and say this, Scripture doesn't allow for that possibility. And it's going to get worse for Israel, I guarantee you that. They may get down to a very tiny little piece of land. But unless I am way off, and I could be, the Bible does not allow for the possibility of Israel to be restored to the land a second time. The first time was coming back into the land after Babylon. Restored to the land a second time, and then to be destroyed and wiped off the face of the earth. And oh, oh wait, wait, better take the battery out of the clock, quick! We don't want to hear that song till next year. You know, the Bible does not allow for that. One of the reasons I am absolutely convinced we are at the tail end of the last days is because Israel is there, and the Bible says that is never going to happen again. It has happened. Isaiah 66, verses 7 through 9. May 14th, 1948, Israel came back into the land and it happened, gang. Isaiah 11, verse 11, the prophet said, It will happen on that day that the Lord will, listen to the language, again recover the second time with His hand the remnant of His people. And then Isaiah goes on to describe north, south, east, and west, God is going to start drawing His people back into the land of Israel the second time. Isaiah wrote that 150 years before it happened the first time. 
There has not been a second time until 1948. And it happened. And so now, prophecy and history has collided, and we are sitting here in a world in which Israel exists as a nation. In which people, Jewish people, north, south, east, and west, are flooding back into the land. What if Israel is destroyed again? It won't be. It won't be. Not until Jesus comes at the very end will we see any kind of destruction. Not until the tribulation hits will we see the kind of destruction that could cause these things to be. I'm I'm stunned by all of this. And so, gang, we need to understand the fig tree is stretching out its leaves. The end is near. In fact, number seven in your notes, uh, seventh and final thing to note, the summer is near. The summer is near. Verse 30, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Hey, wait a minute. Only God can speak eternal words. And Jesus says, what I speak to you right now, these are eternal words. My words do not pass away, will never pass away. Even after the earth is gone, my word remains. How can you say that, Jesus? Because He's God. And because God can say whatever He wants, and it stays. He's coming, gang. He is near. He is right at the door. This word generation. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away. You Bible students have heard me say this. It's the Greek word genea. And Ganea can refer either to a people of the same era, that is when the fig tree buds, the people of that era will not pass away until all this takes place. Or it could refer to a people not necessarily of the era, but a people of the same kind, that is the generation of Jewish people. So you could say the Jewish people will not pass away until all these things take place. So which one is it? Is it the era, or is it the people? And I would say yes. Yes. It's the people. The Jewish people would not pass away because God is faithful. And the era we are in, the generation of the budding fig tree, will not pass away before we see the Son of Man, or the world sees the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. We are that generation, gang. I believe for multiple reasons. That we're the generation who saw the fig tree begin to bud in 1948, and the summer is near. Verse 32. Heaven and earth will not pass away. Verse 31. But my words will not pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not. Verse 32. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Interesting. How is that possible? You just told us Jesus is God. Jesus' words are eternal. But now Jesus says He doesn't even know when it's going to happen. The Father knows, but He doesn't know, but He's God. Then why doesn't He know? Very simply, gang. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, Jesus emptied Himself and made Himself nothing. When Jesus emptied Himself and made Himself nothing and became a man, the only things that He would know in terms of the divine uh, knowledge would be that which was given Him by the Holy Spirit. He took the same position that you and I are in. Now, I absolutely believe Jesus knew who He was. That's, that wasn't a question. And functioned within His character, both as Son of God and Son of Man. But He chose to set aside even His divine knowledge of when the end would come. And so when Jesus spoke these words, 
He didn't know. Only the Father knew. The angels don't. I don't even know. I can't tell you right now. What about now? I think Jesus knows now. I just think He didn't know when He was talking to them on the Mount of Olives. But Matthew 28.18, after the resurrection, Jesus said, all authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. So if He has all authority, that includes when He returns. That's just my opinion. But as of His resurrection, I think Jesus probably knew then and, and knows of His return. And as a matter of fact, isn't He the same one who gave the revelation to John? And in the revelation to John, in Revelation chapter 19, Jesus returning, and all these things happening, and He's showing it happened to John, and I think Jesus knows. And He says, verse 33, But take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. Well, Rick, you just said we're in the last, we're in that generation. Yeah, but I don't know what time. I just believe we're in the season. And I'm not going to give a time because that's just foolishness. That is of the Father to know. Jesus says, it is like a man uh, away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. If there's any hint of the church in this teaching, it's that verse right there. Each one of us have a task. Each one of us, as different members of one body, have different functions, have different gifts, have different callings on our life by the Lord. And we are called to those tasks, functioning together in this day and in this age, waiting for His return. And He commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, Jesus says, be on the alert. For you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows. I think it's interesting... Peter remembers that. Or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep, what I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Jesus tells his friends to live in a state of readiness. This, I said it Sunday, I'll say it again, this should define our lives as followers of Jesus that is living in a state of readiness. Your eyes open in the morning, you say, Jesus, if you come today, may I be found faithful. May I be ready. He tells his friends, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, live in a state of readiness. Knowing 2,000 years ago that all four men would die prior to all that he told them. Live in a state of readiness, he says to his friends. Are you friends of Jesus? If you are a friend of Jesus, how then should we live? Adam Clark in his commentary wrote, The more the Master is expected, the more diligent ought the servants to be in working, in watching, in keeping themselves in readiness. We are to be a people who are heavenly minded and who are ready to go at a moment's notice when He calls. 